So over the last several weeks, we've been in a sermon uh, series on the Ten Commandments. And uh, I have really, truly enjoyed this series. Uh, If you've grown up in church, the Ten Commandments are something that you've known uh, for a long time. It's something that you're familiar with. It's something that you've memorized. And you had it so memorized that you went ahead and forgot it. Right? It's, <laughs> it's one of those things you're like, oh yeah, the Ten Commandments, I got it. You know, no other gods and no idols and some others and be nice. And, you know, and we're like, really, I just like what Jesus said. Love God and love your neighbors. Right? And so we synthesize it down because we forget. But it, because it, it becomes so commonplace to us. But I, I don't know about you, but for me, this series has been really enlightening, really encouraging, and super challenging. And so uh, I'm excited. Today we're going to be covering our last two uh, commandments. I've titled today's message, uh, I've titled it Candid and Content, because I believe that that's what these last two commandments are, are aiming at. And it uses alliteration, which always, you know, gets extra credit from our Baptist friends. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the main idea in these Ten Commandments, I want to just do a quick overview and then we'll jump into it. But uh, the main idea is that God has our absolute best interest in mind with these Ten Commandments. And he didn't come out of nowhere, just come out of, the, out of the blue and just start launching commandments at us and hurling requirements at us. But he's saying, I want to be in a relationship with you where I'm going to take care of you, I'm going to protect you, and I'm going to, uh, you're going to be my people, and I'm going to be your God, and you're going to love me, and I'm going to love you, and you're going to be distinct. Um, but even if, even if he did come out of nowhere and just say, live this way, don't do this and do this instead, he has that right. Because he's still God. That's what makes it even so much more remarkable that he comes at us from a, uh, from a place of relationship and not just from a place of rulership. And so I'm thankful for that. And that's one of the things that settled down in my heart as we've been, as we've been looking at this. And I've just been so grateful that he doesn't just offer us rules and maybe we can do enough to, to please him, but he comes alongside of us as we do these things, as we're loyal to him, as we're faithful to him. I thought it would be fun to review the previous eight commands that we've talked about by highlighting what it would look like in terms of a conversation. It would go something like this. Hey, God, thanks for delivering us, promising to take care of us and stuff. Um, can we worship other gods too? No, N- not a good idea. Right, and actually, uh, this this isn't part of the conversation. As an aside, uh, a few years ago, doing campus ministry, I met a young man who was into demon worship, and he had some. Yeah, it gets really deep, right? Uh, really like tense. Uh, so he was into demon worship, and he was telling me about the names of these demons he worships, and he was so proud of it. And I was like, "Wow, this is really trippy." Like, how do I deal with this? And the Holy Spirit dropped on me a question to ask him, and the question was this: What do these demons have in mind for you? What is their heart for you? Because he was telling me about all the power that he experienced when he did it. He was telling me about the strength that he feels. He likes the goosebumps. He likes the, the fire. He likes the trance-like states that he would enter into. I said, what is their plan for you? And he got silent. He said, I don't know. I said, why don't you ask him? Just right now, I'll wait. And so uh, he, he looked terrified. And he didn't do it. And I said, I think the reason you're terrified is because what they have for you is death. What they have for you is lie upon lie upon lie. A power that won't sustain. 
a strength that's fleeting. But let me tell you about Yahweh. Let me tell you about the God who loves life so much he gave his own so that you could have it. Let me tell you about a God whose whose purpose for you is an eternal life in closeness with him. It's the God above all gods. And he looked at me in complete disbelief. And I said, well, think about it. And I prayed for him and that was the end of the conversation. I never saw him again. But I just want to let you know that, you know, sometimes, uh, sometimes we forget that life is bigger than your life. Right? When we talk about God being above all gods, we forget that there are people and, and places that do worship other gods, that worship demons and angels and all these other things. And so uh, this is a significant thing. We can make gods out of other things. We do make gods out of other things. And that brings us right to this idol thing. So the conversation continues. Okay, God, I got you. I can't worship other gods, but can I carve things out of wood and worship them? No. Hey, God, can I use your name as a swear word? (laughs) No. Why would you do that anyway? Would you be okay if I worked myself to death? What? You know, if I refuse to rest. If I take everything into my own hands and trust in my own ability and provide for myself. No. See how God's voice is a little lower than mine in the conversation? (laughs) Hey, God, how about I despise my parents? How about I just hate them and hold them in contempt for everything that I feel like they've done wrong for me? No. God, you're really cramping my style. Fine. Can I at least murder people I don't like? No. Can I sleep with my neighbor's wife? No. How about I just think about sleeping with my neighbor's wife? No. Can I take my neighbor's stuff? No. Can I just think about taking my neighbor's things all the time? (laughs) That's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, As I said, I've titled today's message, Candid and Content, because I believe those are the goals of these last two commandments. We've learned that these commands make tons of sense and aren't burdensome. In fact, they're, they're very practical. They were created to help us, uh, they, they, they aren't burdensome. And in fact, not only are they not burdensome, but they were created to keep us away from a terrible burden. Yeah. The burden of guilt and shame. The, the, the burden of trying to be good enough to come up to this perfect standard that we're really unable to attain in the first place. And that's the trick of these. As we look at how the Bible def- defines these commands, we realize that we're hopelessly unable to accomplish them. For example, the command not to murder is parsed out by Jesus in the book of Matthew. And we learn that it's, if you, if you don't give life, if you don't give value to someone's life, you've already murdered them. Whoa. But at every point of our failure, Christ is willing and ready to forgive us and receive us and give us his righteousness. Because at every place where we failed, he was successful. So let's look at these last two. It's Exodus chapter 20, verses 16 and 17. It says this. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not cover, uh, covet your neighbor's house, nor shall you covet your neighbor's wife or his male servants or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything 
that is your neighbor's. This is God's word to us. Father, in the name of Jesus, help us today to understand the value that you place on words, the power that resides in them, and help our hearts to delight in you and in you alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we get into the specifics of the two commands, I just want to look at the question, who's my neighbor? Because we could feel really off the hook pretty quick. We're like, oh, well, that's great. I've never lied about my neighbor, and I've never wanted my neighbor's wife, right? <laughs> I mean, I, I, I make light of it, and I play with it, but the reality is our neighbor isn't just the person that lives next door to us. Uh, I had a friend named John who called us neighbors. We live five miles apart. He's like, yeah, yeah, we're neighbors. We'd be out with people, and I'm like, yeah, I guess in the, like, global sense, we're, we're neighbors. But I always thought of my neighbors as being like with one, within one or two numbers of us, you know, not one or two states. And so, uh, but in, in, the, in, in God's mind, in Christ's mind, our neighbor is anyone who we find ourselves among or even aware of. In Luke chapter 10, verses, uh, really in Luke chapter 10, you could see the whole parable, but in verse 25 through 29, he starts sharing the parable of the Samaritan. A parable is a story and a Samaritan was a, a race or a group of people. And he tells this story to these, to these people he's teaching. And he's saying that somebody was injured on the road. I think, you know, this is a great flannel graph story. If you grew up in church, there was a man who was injured on the road. And the priest walked by. And the good, the good people walked by. And everybody that we would call good walked by this person who was broken and beaten and left for dead. And then the Samaritan came by. And when he spoke of a Samaritan, it would have been uh, akin to speaking of a convicted felon. So he's like, hey, a great person, a good person, and a pretty good person walked by this guy who had been beaten and left for dead. And then the convicted felon walked by and took time to care for, took him to an inn and paid for his care and said, I'll take care of any, uh, any expenses that come up in his need. I'll take care of him. And that's why we call it a good Samaritan. But it would have been like saying the good convicted felon. Right? So it blew people's minds. And Jesus was saying, look, it's not a matter of the person who lived next door to you. It's the matter of the person. We're all responsible for all of us. These Ten Commandments that started with our relationship with God were responsible first to Him, but out of our relationship with God, we should begin to feel a sense of responsibility for everybody that we know and know of. I, uh, so uh, Every Child Fed is, a, is, a, is an organization that was started by some people out of our church because they became aware of some needs in Africa. And they were like, I can't be aware of this need and not do something about it. That's the short version of the story. But that's the spirit behind it. We become aware of a need. We can't, and, and now we're at this really strange time in history where we can be, all you have to do is log on to the news and you become aware of too many problems. And so for us, like, uh, like Jermaine said, for our, our offering message, it's checking in with God and saying, God, how would you have me use my money today? How would you have me use my time today? Because I want to do what's pleasing to you. Will you lead me in this? And so now there's so much need and there's so much hurt. I think we need to be mindful to say, God, I can't possibly cover everything. What is it that you have called me to do? Who is it that you've called me to care for? Maybe God's calling you to, 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 donate to one of the orphanages that Grace Covenant Church is behind. Maybe God's calling you to donate significantly, to, to donate to the Every Child Fed organization. Maybe God's calling you to give to our campus and college ministers who raise support so that they can preach the gospel and, and, and be essentially missionaries to the college campus. Are you with me? 
That's all. And aside, but our neighbor is anybody who we come across. So with that in mind, let us look at verses 16 and 17. You shall not bear false witness against your, ma- your neighbor. This command matters because our words matter. God created everything with what? Words. He spoke these things into existence. Proverbs 18.21 says, The tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Contained in our words, our words are simply vessels for something. What is being communicated through the words that you use and through the words that you choose? Sometimes we accidentally stumble onto something and communicate something very, very different than we intended to. But our words carry with it a a spiritual power and an authority when we speak. That's why insults hurt so bad. That's why, you know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. I'd rather you throw a stick at me than hurl an insult at me, especially if you're close to me. Right? Because it's going to be real hard to pick up a stick big enough (laughs) to, to throw at me that would either hurt or, or pit me, right? So throw, don't throw sticks at me. That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> In James chapter 3, we can read about the power of our words. Verses 9 through 11 say it this way. Sometimes our tongue, sometimes our words praise our Lord and Father. Sometimes it curses those who have been made in the image of God. That's you and me. That's the confusion in these commandments. God's saying, you can't love me the way that you're supposed to love me and then turn around and lie about your neighbor because it's incongruent. And so much blessing and cursing come pouring out of the same mouth. Surely, my brothers and sisters, this is not right. Does a spring of water bubble out with both fresh water and bitter water? The answer to that is no. Our words were given to us with the capacity, and for the purpose of producing life. But they work in the other direction too. This telling the truth is not just about bearing false witness about our neighbors as you look into it and you understand the spirit of this. We understand that it extends to not bearing false witness under oath or otherwise. That's not allowing an untruth to continue. That means not allowing an untruth to continue. It means telling the whole truth. I, I'm, I'm not going to lie. When I was looking at this this week, I was like, dang. Really? <laughs> like, God, you want to just show me a loophole in this? <laughs> he didn't see fit to, to do so. It means not justifying yourself in spite of facts. You know, most self-justification and most offense comes out of a fear that God's not going to really defend us. But I'll tell you what happens if, if we take this seriously. I didn't realize until just this moment that on Thursday, I had an opportunity to apologize to someone. It's Thursday night, and I was at this meeting, 
And I looked at this person and I apologized. And I took the brunt for the things that I didn't even do. Because God holds truth. I wanted to say, I'm sorry, but I wasn't responsible for for these parts of this. The reality, it didn't matter. Who was responsible? I wanted to defend myself. But I went going into that meeting with the idea that, hey, if I just apologize, because even even though those things weren't my fault, I was associated with them loosely and closely enough that I could have done something, maybe. But the reality was, it didn't matter to that person or even to me about those facts. But, you know, you, you've got that. You're not dead yet. You know, our life is supposed to be hidden with Christ. And sometimes our life is like, peek boo. <laughs> Here I am. You're not, you're not as dead as you thought you were. You really want to defend yourself still. You're, you're, but dead, dead people don't feel. And so I was like, God, teach me to be dead. And so, so I apologized. And then I just stayed quiet said, I'm so sorry for everything that happened. I failed. And I just left it. And, I wanted, and you're like right there where you want to be like rambling and be like, but it wasn't my fault. <laughs> and you're responsible too. <laughs> yeah, that's, JC's laughing because that's the worst kind of apology. That's a, that's a no apology. <laughs> you just like, that's like retracting an apology. You know, you're like, I'm really sorry. But that's like, and strike the last things from the record. But God is the owner of truth. And he'll defend you. He'll defend your case. He'll defend your cause. But he can't defend a web of lies. Because he'll defend truth. There are a few occasions that, that, uh, there are, a few occasions that are an exception to this lying. Um, you know, birthday presents. You know, surprise birthday parties. I'm not saying go like buy your wife a Maserati and then lie about it. I'm saying like, I don't know what we're going to do tonight. Those kind of bad lies. In competition, competition, you know, you're like, well, the Hail Mary, or I mean, I'm sorry, the, the Statue of Liberty play, that's deception and that's a lie. You, you made, if you know football, it's, it's a play where you, somebody else pretends to have the ball and then somebody else has the ball and... It's like, well, that's deception. That was a lie. You just lied playing football. (laughs) You're a liar and you need to just, you line up on the line and you're like, by the way, the ball is coming to me this play. I'm obligated to tell you the truth. I am a Christian. (laughs) You know, or you line up, Hey, here's what's really gonna happen. Don't cover me. I'm open. I like, they're not, they're not coming my way. They're going to give it to 22. You know? It's a trick play, but, you know, just line up right there and you'll get them. No, so in competition, there's, there's room for um, deception. Uh, you know, if you're playing cards, you know, and, you know, you don't have to be like, hey, I'm going to destroy you. <laughs> I've got four wild cards. That's Uno. Right? So, y'all thought I was talking about poker because you're sinners. I don't know anything about poker. <laughs> Neither does JC. <laughs> I'm lying. I'm bearing false witness right now. Um, 
We can do it to save others. We can do it to save others. Those Christians and those, even those non-Christians who took courageous steps to, de- to, to defend the Jews in the Holocaust. Those courageous men and women who set up the Underground Railroad to deliver slaves out of slavery. I don't know what you're talking about. To defend life. There's room for us, but the reality is most of our lives aren't to defend life. They're to defend ourselves. And the real risk here is that we're, we're, we're flexing the wrong muscles. Muscles are funny. Because if you, if you eat, like in high school, like all the guys only care about their biceps and their bench press, right? So it's like that's all they work on. But you look at a, a high schooler's back and it's like completely undeveloped. Because those are the only muscles they can see in the mirror. Right? And so what happens is if you, if you look at a kid who doesn't have a very good trainer, they'll start to like pull, their shoulders will pull forward and they'll start walking funny because everything's like completely out of balance. Right? And they feel like they look like this and they're really like this because our muscles, with the muscles you give time and attention to grow. And so if you're working that muscle of a little white lie, it's going to grow. And then your truth-telling muscle is going to shrink. And then you're going to be all bent over under all these lies. I just lied to make myself look good. I just lied to do this. I just lied. To, and that was a good lie because it got me a promotion. <laughs> right? But the truth muscles stand us upright. Okay, we got to keep going. As an added benefit, how great is it when, when, people don't, when you don't have to sort through somebody's truth or untruth? You can just take them at face value. Sorry about lying about poker. You can trust me for the rest of the sermon. <laughs> how great would it feel to know and to be able to expect people to trust you because you've been honest with them and you've been clear with them. You've been transparent. You haven't hidden from them. Okay. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, nor your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. If you think back to the second commandment, God introduces himself and reminds us that he's a jealous God, and now he's telling us not to covet. And sometimes in our English language, we treat those two words the same, jealousy and covetousness. To be jealous is to be protective of something that belongs to you. To be covetous is to lust for or to long for something that is somebody else's or that's simply not yours. Okay, and so he's saying, don't covet, don't chase after all these things that aren't yours. And I went, I went at great length last week um, about, about how this commandment is really the birthplace of a lot of, a lot of the other sins that we would commit in violation of the other commandments. The, you know, adultery comes from this. Murder comes from this. Theft comes from this. At first glance, you know, it feels like, well, I haven't coveted anybody's ox or donkey, so I'm pretty good there. You know, I'm like four for seven. <laughs> you know? um, or two for seven, rather. But then you realize that the, the ox and donkey in, in biblical times would have been a symbol of industry. 
and productivity and blessing. Strength. When you consider that, it's like, oh, I failed at all of them. You know, the thing about contentment, we've all experienced this. Well, I'm really speaking of discontentment. You're at a restaurant, and you're looking at the menu, and you're like, I got it. I'm going with the chicken fajitas. I feel just, I feel led (laughs) by the Spirit of God that that's where the goodness is. I just I feel good about that. It's going to minister to my soul. And it's going to be all smoky. It's like a glory cloud. <laughs> the presence of God comes in with my fajitas. I feel good about this. And you get your fajitas and you're like, I made the right choice. These beans and this rice is delicious. And I like the vegetables. I have done no wrong here. And then the person at the next table gets the nachos. And you're like, I should have gotten the nachos. I can't even enjoy this garbage anymore. The chicken's burned. There's too many vegetables. Why'd they overload the tomatoes? I don't even like tomatoes. You know, the rice is dry and the beans are awful and they are, we're out of chips and we don't have any salsa. You know, and then every, everything's awful. And you're like, I'm not even going to tip them. What is this place? Why do they even have a food license? I bet this is a place for the mob. Anybody else ever felt that way about your order? (laughs) You're you're totally content until you see what somebody else has. You're totally at peace with the job that you had. You agreed to work for the wage that you had until that other person got a raise. And then somebody tells you, you're worth more than that. You deserve more than that. By the way, the word deserve, just I, I'll tell you what I, when I hear the word deserve, I, I, something inside me cringes and pulls back and I'm like, that's not good. Because it really, at, on the grand scheme of things, what all of us deserve, <laughs> y'all are with me? In the court of God, what we deserve is death. What we deserve is the wrath of God. Don't talk to me about what I deserve. He's given me life. He's provided for me. He's taking care of me. Everything that I have is better than I deserve. And I didn't feel that way when my car wasn't like, so I've got a car that won't, that's not breaking down, right? It's a Chevy Malibu, 2011. I'm not scared. You can know what I drive. But, right? But everybody's like, what's he drive? <laughs> But this car doesn't make me any happier than the car that I drove that looked like I hit a person. I had this Honda Accord, and it looked like I hit a person. And people are like, really, you shouldn't be driving around in that. It looks like you committed a crime. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, God will vindicate me. It's good. But I'm, I'm no more content in a car that really gets everywhere that I need it to than I was with a car that looked like I had committed a crime and might not make it to my destination. We need to find contentment. Our desire for material wealth and natural things shouldn't provoke us. It shouldn't drive us. That's not where we should find our delight. But Psalm 37, 4 says this. Delight yourself 
in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. We can understand this to mean several things. That we can enjoy the blessing that we have in this life, in this natural life. We can enjoy air conditioning. We can enjoy donuts and coffee. We can enjoy good food. We can enjoy friendship. We can enjoy marriage. We can enjoy uh, playing games. We can enjoy Uno. We can enjoy (laughs) these things, right? We can enjoy them. But our delight should be in God and God alone. Our delight, our joy, our contentment, our fulfillment should be found in Christ alone. The promise in this verse is that he will supply you with a desire and then fulfill that desire. He will give you the desires of your heart. It's cool because it doesn't mean he's going to, it doesn't mean that I can come up with any desire and he's going to satisfy it. Because there are a lot of things that I desire that are wicked, that are crooked. I mean, not so much that you should worry about listening to me right now. I've grown, <laughs> you got it. The things that we desire have this sinful bent, have this crooked bent to them that has our own lustful interest in mind. But he's going to give us desires and when it's his desire for us he'll satisfy it and i do believe that that's the key to contentment in him it doesn't mean that you can't want things that you don't have it doesn't mean that if if you know you're in a bad job that you can't be like well god is there another job for me it doesn't mean that you can't ask for things that you don't have it doesn't mean that if you don't have a car you have to only always use bus transportation and you can't ask god to provide a means of transportation for you that's not what that means but it means that our delight our satisfaction our fulfillment needs to be in him and in him alone we can, uh, Buddhism will say, the problem with life is desires. So get rid of desires. The promise in Christianity is that Christ gives us new sanctified desires. And he'll lead us in that. And you'll notice that the, the desire that's given from God is markedly different than the desire that comes from you. I want a car for my own status. God wants a car for me so that I can accomplish his purposes. You see it? I want a promotion so that I can make more money, so that I can do more things uh, for me and take vacations and have vacation homes and boats and cars and all these other things, right? Maybe that's a temptation for you. If God wants you to have more so that you can sow more into the kingdom and you can do more and you can care for more people and you can advance the kingdom of God through your resources and through your giving. You see it? He's calling us to contentment and delight in him. What becomes possible if we're people who are truthful and whose words are seasoned with grace and mercy? What becomes possible if we become a people who find our delight in God and God alone and are able to live open-handedly because we're not caught up on having what's better than our neighbor or having what our neighbor has, but we try find satisfaction and, and, and we find peace in the way that God has provided for us. And we find joy in the fact that he's going to continue to provide for us and he's going to continue to prepare the way for us and take care of us and take care of you. We become a distinct people on whom the light of God can shine. We become a distinct people who advance the kingdom and the cause of God in our community.